Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are going to talk about the Biden administration's foreign policy challenges with Aaron David Miller, a true expert in this area. Aaron is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, focusing on U.S. foreign policy. Between 1978 and 2003, Aaron served at the State Department as a historian, analyst, negotiator, and advisor to both Republican and Democratic secretaries of state. He has written five books, including the most recent, The End of Greatness, Why America Can't Have and Doesn't Want Another Great President, and the much too promised land, America's elusive search for Arab-Israeli peace. Aaron is a global affairs analyst for CNN. Aaron, welcome to Passing Judgment, and thank you for being here. Terrific, Jessica, to sit down with you, even virtually, maybe one day in person. I would love that. And I know that you, in fact, are about to wear one of your other hats as an analyst for CNN. And so we have limited time with you. And I want to start with question I've been thinking about for a while now, which is that President Biden entered the presidency with a good deal of experience, both domestically and in terms of foreign policy. Do you think, just looking at the last few months, that there is going to be a Biden doctrine that we talk about years or decades from now? Well, it may not be a declared doctrine. I would call it a set of assumptions, which is tethered to, I'm a Star Trek fan, which is tethered to what I call the prime directive or Biden's prime directive. If he were on this call with us and he was prepared to be open and honest and brutally candid, he would say the following. Jessica, he would say, there is no greater danger to the American Republic, and I might add a greater threat to my presidency, than the three or four interlocked challenges. I won't call them crises because my Republican opposition calls them crises, but they are critical that threaten the American Republic at home. There is no single foreign policy issue out there, not a one. Perhaps climate, if we're talking trans-global issue, but there is no single foreign policy issue out there that is more dangerous or damaging to this country than those domestic crises. And as a consequence, I intend to be a transformative president at home. And despite my internationalist and aspirational tendencies, I deeply believe in U.S. leadership. I'm going to be extremely careful. Jessica, it is a world not to be redeemed. It's a world to be managed. I'm not happy about it. It goes against some of my sensibilities and deeply held beliefs in American leadership. But it is the nature of the world that America operates in today. That may be the closest we ever get to having President Biden on the podcast is to have you talk through what you think he would say. And I want to pick up on this idea. You said there are three to four challenges. There's no one foreign policy challenge. Could you talk to us a little bit about what those three to four challenges are? Well, first is the greatest threat to public health since the great influenza of 1917, 1918. Um, we spent billions, if not trillions of dollars uh, in the wake of 9-11 uh, in an effort to preempt, prevent um, jihadi terror from striking the United States. And we were relatively, I would say, actually very successful at it for any number of reasons. And yet when the threat to the American Republic came, it 
didn't come in the form of, of, of jihadi missive or a terror attack post 9-11. It came in the form of a virus, um, a indiscriminating virus that has now killed 630,000 Americans and counting, may well surpass the great influenza of 1917-1918, which claimed 675,000 American lives. It's probably the greatest world-altering event since the Second World War. And if we don't vaccinate the world, and if we can't create some measure of herd immunity here, the various variants are going to spread, and we're going to be living with COVID. And the economic, social, and psychological implications of a nation-altering challenge like COVID. That's one. Second are the derivatives uh, of COVID, which are the economic and social challenges created not just to cope with the virus, but has forced so many into poorer states, whether it's their social relationships, whether it's alienation, drug abuse, poor economic state. It's a racial polarization. It's political. It cuts across economic uh, and ethnic lines. And finally, there is, I, I think, the, the threat that is the most difficult to, to deal with and let alone to overcome, and that is the notion of what is truth. How can you have effective self-governance in a democratic polity when millions of Americans disagree with other millions of Americans on the basic empirical data that constitute the realities uh, of American life. Because if there is no general consensus, no narrative, no belief system that the vast majority of Americans are prepared to accept with their own interpretations, and these three or four interlock crises feed on one another, they're slow bleeds. I wrote a book, The End of Greatness, Why America Can't Have and Doesn't Want Another Great President. At the central core of my thesis is that greatness in the presidency is a function of nation-encumbering crisis, a crisis so hot, so irrepressible, so all-consuming that nobody can sit it out. And yet the crises we face today are slow, slower bleeds, immigration, polarization in our politics climate, which tend to divide, they don't unite. So you want a great president? The argument goes, be prepared for a nation encumbering crisis, but also for a president that can take that crisis and has the other two C's, character and capacity. So it's so interesting to me that you mentioned one of these big challenges as being what is truth. And I had a question built in for us asking basically which countries are the greatest threat? And then what I really wanted to ask you was, or am I asking the wrong question? Is disinformation a bigger threat? And it sounds like the answer might be, yes, it is. And so I'm hoping not just to talk about threats, but to talk about two of the the big challenges you just mentioned, polarization and this issue of what is truth. Are there ways that you think either short-term or long-term, we can think through this problem of polarization. I mean, in preparing for our interview, I feel like every question was going to start with, Aaron, can you help us think through the intractable problem of fill in the blank? But Aaron, can you help us think through the intractable problem of polarization? 
I mean, I'd be insulting your intelligence and mine if I uh, came up with some neatly packaged Rx of five steps that would somehow address this problem. This is not just a function of the last four years. It's a function of the last 20 or even more. Uh, I think that the vast majority of people in this country are inherently centrist and willing to accept conventional norms and traditions of the, of, of, of the American polity. For decades, we toggled back and forth, whether it was a Democratic or a Republican administration, between uh, presidents that colored within their respective lines, but there were lines. There were certain boundaries. There was respect for, well, there were transgressions in almost every administration when it came to came to um, abiding by legal and perhaps even constitutional norms, but they didn't diverge into a sort of new frontier that we've never seen before. The last four years created or amplified and exaggerated this sort of situation in which Americans were deeply polarized. When you asked someone in the 60s whether, according to the polls, whether or not they would mind if their daughter or son married a Republican or a Democrat, a member of the opposite party, the, the responses were in single digits. Now they're in double digits. Now politics in America, and it's always had a dimension of this sort, but polarization now has become tribal. And tribal means that you deploy your own facts, your own empirical realities in the service of your ideology, and you must, in order to maintain the cohesion and the identity of the tribe, you must demonize the other. It has to become personal. I could only say that the key is not to persuade the vast majority of people who fundamentally and, and violently disagree with one another, but to calve off enough that you could actually create a functional system of governance which delivers. And that's why, I mean, I voted for Republicans and Democrats. I voted for Joe Biden for many different reasons. But I think the key to restoring some measure of balance in our politics, function in our politics, is to deliver and close the gaps between rich and poor, between people of color and those who are not, and to use the institutions of governance to demonstrate that, in fact, government is not some sort of demonic force that wants to take over and control your life. It can actually be an agency of delivering things that will make your life better. You brought up so many really important points about the reality of our world. And I heard you say something, Aaron, that Joe and I have said on the podcast so many times, which is this is going to sound like a partisan statement. Or you said, you know, I voted for Republicans, I voted for Democrats. And you brought up these really important questions of polarization. And I would love to spend more time just talking about this issue of truth. But I heard you say something in the beginning that I just, I thought was so fascinating. And I wanted to tie it to my question about basically, will there be a Biden doctrine? And you said, this is a world, I'm paraphrasing here, but you said, this is a world not to be redeemed, but to be managed. And I'm going to ask you a, a compound question, which only for the sake of time, which is why, why, why cannot we not redeem the world? And then what can Biden 
do about it. I think a lot of listeners are fascinated by the theory and then also want to know what are the concrete steps that our current president could take? The world can't be redeemed in my judgment because what ails, well, there's, there, 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 there's several factors here. First, um, in my judgment, the United States um, will maintain the, the best balance of political, economic, uh, moral, and soft and military power for the foreseeable future. There's no question about that. But there is a certain reality. Uh, and that reality is, uh, Fareed Zakaria, I think, talked about the rest are rising. You have the emergence of powers, some large, Russia and and particularly China, some medium size, Iran and North Korea, um, who in the face of the com- new complexities in the international environment are able to change, challenge the status quo and protect their interests in a way that, in, in my judgment, makes it extremely difficult for the United States or, as Biden would have it, a collection of fellow democracies to somehow um, harness all of that collective power in order to deal with, I won't call them outliers, but to deal with the challenges uh, that a, a nation like China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran pose, whether it's proliferation, whether it's Russian disinformation or cyber hacking, and I, I think that's that's one element. Second is the reality that America's capacity, let's take the Middle East as an example, take Afghanistan, it's on everyone's mind. The notion that even 20 years ago, the United States committed itself to a set of policies which originated in an effort to deal with 9-11. We did it extremely effectively between October of 01 and the spring of 02, the threat posed by the by Taliban harboring of Al Qaeda. Our objective in Afghanistan morphed. They morphed in large part because the notion of defeating an insurgency was not just viewed as a counterterrorism project. It was used. It was viewed as a redemption project. That in fact, in order to eliminate these sorts of groups, you had to create a new basis on which Afghanis would, the Afghan people would relate to one another. You'd have to create a transparent, accountable, um, non-corrupt central government in a country that had lacked that sort of centralization of power, did not have that sort of democratic tradition. And that, as the situation revealed in Iraq, or in Syria, or in Yemen, or in Libya, was beyond America's capacity to repair the problem of empty spaces, poorly governed or not governed at all, sectarian tensions, lack of gender equality, lack of transparency, corruption, extractive leaders who care more about their own interests than they do about the welfare and well-being of their countries and their peoples as a whole. How would it have been possible for the United States, which is struggling with repairing its own broken house, to bring that sort of redemption to Afghanistan when it was clear to those who 
participated in U.S. policy through three administrations, that the war against the Taliban was A, unwinnable, and the notion of transforming Afghanistan into something that resembled a coherent, accountable, pluralistic society, uh, somehow tied to the West, was a fantasy. They knew, they knew, and this is, I think, the real tragedy, which makes it very much like Vietnam. They knew the war was unwinnable. And even today, there are those who argue that keeping 2,500 American forces in Afghanistan, regardless of whether we can transform the government, is much better than the situation that the Biden administration, or at least the options that the Biden administration has now exercised, and what you've seen playing out here. So I, I think that we don't understand the world. I think that a lot of it is tied to where we are. We have non-predatory neighbors to our north and south and fish to our east and west. What one historian, I wish it had been me, described those two oceans as our liquid assets. Where we are has an enormous degree of influence in shaping the way we relate to the rest of the world. It explains our naivete. I do not believe, maybe once we knew what it was like to be a small power when 13 colonies were perched precariously on the Eastern seaboard with literally the greatest powers in Europe, Spain, France, and Britain in our own backyard. Maybe then we knew what it was like to think and feel like a small power. We don't anymore. And we make mistakes as a consequence. It explains our arrogance. We have a margin for error that is greater and deeper than any of the countries that we deal with. Because unlike Russia, China, Israel, the Palestinians, Egypt, Iran, North Korea, we have freed ourselves to the extent that it is humanly possible for any country to free themselves from the two forces that most nations will never escape, the force of geography and the power of history. Aaron David Miller, I think we're going to have to leave it on that one final comment. You gave us so much to think about in terms of the challenges that the Biden administration is facing and that future administrations will face, and a lot to think about in terms of the things that we can do and, frankly, the things that we can do and how we got to this place in what it means to have kind of quintessentially American decision makers operating this space. And something I just I don't think about enough, which is the importance of our geography and how it shapes so much of what we do. And so, Aaron, thank you so much for passing judgment with us. Jessica, it was a pleasure. I'm sorry. You know, you drop a nickel in me and I tend to drone on. There's so much we didn't talk about. We actually didn't get to Afghanistan and we should have. So I I apologize for that. But it was a pleasure and honor to be here with you. No apology needed. We will ask you back. For all of our listeners, you can find Aaron David Miller on Twitter at Aaron D. Miller 2. That's the number two. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Levinson Jessica. To our listeners, we hope you enjoyed these conversations and we wish you a great day. Thank you.